0: Hey, everybody, this is Kevin Eslin, and you're listening to another episode of Folk Stories. Folk Stories is a podcast where we collect the learnings and stories from innovators, founders, and top performers. Today, my guest is Trey Westerdahl, a CEO, founder, board member, and investor of a wide multitude of companies. Trey got interested in technology at an early age after being a exposed to early demos of this whole internet thing in middle school. His first job out of college involved creating systems to help manage domain names, a field that Jay has stuck with ever since. Jay founded his own domain company, Domain Tools, in 2001, which provided information about the history and ownership of internet domains. Jay also started the Domain Roundtable, a conference dedicated solely to the topic of domain names. Jay later sold domain tools in 2008 for an eight-figure exit and continued to work with domains ever since. Today, Jay is CEO of 800.com, Realty, and Top Level Spectrum. 800.com is a company that provides other companies with toll-free 800 numbers. Realty is a domain registrar for real estate professionals, and Top Level Spectrum manages various other top-level domains like .feedback and .form. In today's episode. We talk about what domains are and why they matter. We talk about Jay's current day ventures and where he's going. And we also talk about the systems that Jay has put in place that lets him focus on so many different priorities at the same time. One thing to note is that we recorded this episode in Jay's backyard because it was a beautiful Seattle afternoon. What this means, though, is that you might hear some background noise including seaplane flybys and lasting music at the very end. Okay, now with all that being said, I give you Trey Westerdahl. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So I'd like to start things off by figuring out your backstory and where you came from. How did you get involved in the tech space? And when did you know this was something you were interested in?
1: I started in in high, high school um, just kind of like in the computer science lab and trying to figure out uh, what then was the internet and I think I had first seen it at Boeing on a um, take your kid to work day and it basically uh, the way I described it it was like looking at Word, uh, Microsoft Word and then there would be like these blue underlined uh, text links, and I was just fascinated by it. And I came back to school, and I was describing it to everybody. And this may have been in middle school, and uh, yeah, I was just, I was, I was taken by the internet at that point. And in high school, I tried to, you know, start my own websites and understand Netscape and all these fun technologies of the time, and um, started started hosting websites before. Any, any websites were really even out there.
0: When you were doing that, what sort of sites were you hosting? Were they your own sites or were they other people's sites?
1: Um, I was hosting my own sites and kind of learning HTML. And so I would go through the, the index of all the things that you have inside of HTML and um, applying those on my site in some way or, or another. Um, and I never really got into commercially making a site for another person, Um what I ended up doing was uh, later in college, just making sites for myself. And when I finally got a job for someone else, I was making a site for them.
0: Back in those days, I remember um, HTML tags including um, blinking and pop-ups and like the GeoCity days.
1: Yep, uh, you know, blink tag was was one of those that got banned at some point. I, I you know, it was kind of nice when you arrived. You're like, oh, this is the thing you should pay attention to, but there's so many tricks nowadays you don't actually need a blink tag but you could put a blinking gif if you really wanted to keep it that way
0: so uh stack overflow it's uh, the website where programmers go to ask questions and get questions answered um on april 1st they uh changed the site so that they brought it back to the 90s which meant that wherever your mouse went you would have like a bunch of snowflakes falling from it and you had like the horrible color schemes of like, um, sickly orange. And, um, yeah, it just reminded me of those times. Yeah. Um,
1: Good times. Yeah. Um,
0: and so when I was looking at your, uh, history, especially work-wise, it seems like you got started working in domains from very early on. And how did you get into that space?
1: Uh, well, in the '90s, I think I registered my first domain name, which was Westerdahl.com. Um, I thought, oh, it's gonna be cool. I have my own last name, um, and then of course you have an email address, j at Westerdahl.com, which is easy to remember for yourself. And then, as you have family all over the world, or um, you know, new family members now, it's easy to give them an email address. Um, and so, yeah, I've been just giving relatives email addresses for now. Two, three decades. And um, yeah, they've all enjoyed it. And I think it's just natural. Um, and then, as far as like my first job and how I got into it, uh, they were a web hosting company. And I applied because I was like, I, I understand web hosting and I want to do more of it. And it's going to be a really good educational tool for me. And uh, I got on there and they basically said, Hey, can you? help with domain registrations. And I said, yeah, how, what, do, what do you mean? And they were like, well, essentially you fill out these, these templates, these network solutions templates, and you email them to network solutions and um, you'll get an email back saying you got the domain name, you know, maybe a day later or whatever. Um, and so we're taking that template process and we're putting it on the web. So you'll fill out a web form and we'll do all the emailing behind the scenes and then we'll email the person and let them know that they got their domain name Um, but they didn't actually have to do the email themselves, they just filled out the web form so that was the initial project I started working on called Domain Tools or actually sorry, not Domain Tools but uh, it was called Domain Valet Um, and I don't know what happened to Domain Valet but um, it's been gobbled up by multiple companies since then and probably is a parking page at this point
0: for uh, people who aren't familiar with how domains work, you see a, a domain as you know, facebook.com or google.com. What actually goes on, if you were to try to, to explain it in a simplified version, what is the process of domain registration?
1: Yeah, so um, registering a domain name is really simple. Um, you go to someone like uh, uh, Namecheap, um, and you, you type in the name that you want, and you see if it's available or not, and 99% of the time it's taken. Because um, I like to say, essentially, any good concept for a domain name has been thought of 10 years before you think of it. So it's very rare that you can come up with a domain name um, that no one's ever thought of. Uh, I was on vacation in Hawaii once, and I kept on using the the term perma-hold, because you'd be on support... Uh, you know some eight hundred number you call it and it's PermaHold. So I was like, oh, I'll register PermaHold, and I was the first one to think of it. But most of the time, you think of an idea and you go, Oh, someone already thought of it. And then you go visit their website and it's just a parking page. Like they haven't done any anything more than register the idea, and it may not even be the same idea. It's just the same word. Um, and now we have all these new domain names like a .io or. Um, you know, people are starting to get creative. They're like, we don't need a .com anymore because those .com people who own those sites are asking hundreds of thousands of dollars to move off their .com. So that's why developers nowadays have kind of embraced the counterculture and going with different dots.
0: My consulting firm, actually, I just did .io because .com was taken.
1: Correct. Yeah, and and essentially, what happens is. Uh, the companies that get really successful at .io, let's just call it whatever.io, um, eventually they get big enough to the point that the consumers and the customers go, you know what, whatever.com is broken. And you're like, no, 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 it's whatever.io. Um, and so it can be a real problem later in, a, in, in the evolution of a company, but you don't have to worry about it for the first couple years or the tech savvy people that find your company initially. But once you start going mainstream, people double back and they end up spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to recover what would be, you know, that com name.
0: So would you say that coms even in this day of age where there are now hundreds, I don't know how many different top-level domains there are, that com is so important for a company?
1: Yeah, you know, com is king uh, in the United States, you go look at a company like or a country like Germany, um, and you'll see that the mix is about fifty-fifty. So fifty percent of the people will be registering a .com or .eu, um, but a clear majority, maybe even sixty percent, are registering a .de for the country of Germany because they feel it's it's local, it's compelling. It's like using a two hundred six number in Seattle. Um, that is a natural thing. You look at a company, a billboard, and if you see uh, an, a New York area code, you're going to go, wait, what? I- what is that phone number? But if you see a 206, you're going to say, that's a Seattle company. I can call it. I can get the services that are on that billboard. So people tend to group together um, and group think. So, yeah, people, they flock together. Once that group think changes, though, everything starts to change so i don't think dot-com has i would say another 50 years left in it before the group think is changed but it will take a considerable amount of time sem- several uh decades for the group think th- to actually change
0: and uh, something else that i've noticed in recent years is that companies like uh Safari, well apple and google are doing their own versions of trying to quote-unquote kill the domain name in the sense that instead of showing you the entire url they just show you the home uh, page because people find that confusing um and doing other things to they to seemingly make the domain less important and i'm wondering like what are your thoughts about like domains and where do you see they're going where they always have the goal that they have today
1: Yeah, I think domain names are very hard to kick out of the internet just like IP addresses are. Um, You know, you start with IP addresses and it's a horrible way to get to a website remembering four four sets of numbers with three dots in the middle and now we have IPv6 and I don't even know how to type in an IPv6 address. So the, the internet regulars have really screwed that one up. But then you have the nice friendly domain name on the top of it. You know, it's just like my name. Um, It's hard to remember a person's phone number, but when you attach it in your address book to a name, now all of a sudden it's easy. You just type in the person's name, the phone number auto-completes. I could not tell you 99% of the people's phone numbers in my address book. And thankfully I have an address book because that's the only way I can access them. So um, I think as we evolve, we're going to see that getting rid of the domain name is actually quite hard to do. And you may want to simplify it to, you know, the name of the company and Google's done that for mobile search, but um, it's still Google.com. You know, like it will be very hard to get rid of the domain name and you may put stuff on top of it. That's friendly, but it doesn't, it doesn't scale because the domain name is infinite, infinitely scalable because it's, um, there's only one of each unique one.
0: Okay. Earlier, you mentioned with domains that, you know, generally any sort of idea that you th- you think of now, like somebody has already thought of and put a domain name on it or registered for the domain name. Do you find that for most of those existing domain names, is it that people have had an idea that they've bought the domain for and that they just haven't done anything? Or is it uh, domain squatting where you know, people buy domains that they think other people might use and then get to those because they can now sell them for hundreds of thousands of dollars.
1: Um, I mean, I see both sides of the model. So, you know, just like a, a lot of land in Seattle, if you were alive 50 years ago and you had the idea to build a skyscraper in the middle of Seattle and you bought the lot of land and now you own, let's just call it 300 feet by 300 feet in the middle of Seattle and all you ever did was pave it over and put up parking um you're not necessarily a squatter you just haven't developed what you've got nor is anyone entitled to your land um because you chose to use it in a different way perhaps you only put trees on the land um and people get to have the benefit of a, a private park right um I think that people who register domain names are in that same context. If you buy a domain name and you never use it, and then someone emails you and says, hey, I'd like to buy your domain name for a couple hundred dollars, you're free to sell it. Um, or you're free to say, no, um, I actually do have plans for this, but maybe for $10,000 i would sell it because um, I could use 10000 and I could get rid of that, that thing that I had in the back of my mind that I was going to use this domain name for. So, yeah, it, it goes both ways. Um, I've, I've personally sold names for, you know, millions of dollars. And, um, you know, I recently got an offer for 800000 for a domain name, and I, I told them no. So um, they could say I'm a domain squatter, but, um, you know, it's a very generic word. And, you know, it's just one of those situations where... Um, I see both sides, but I definitely think that property rights supersede someone's ambition to try to steal someone else's property.
0: Right. Um, Speaking of properties, um, you mentioned this a little earlier, but Domain Tools was uh, one of the companies that you founded. Um, and Well, first of all, for people who aren't familiar, could you describe a little bit about what Domain Tools did and why you started it?
1: Yeah. So I started out with a problem in the nineties. Um, and that was, um, essentially knowing every single domain name that someone else owned. Um, and that problem really existed in companies. So I was in a company, um, that web hosting company where people in the marketing department would register domain names for the company and the CEO would register names for the company. And, um, maybe some engineers would register some names for the company. And the president of the company didn't even know what names he owned. Uh, he's like, well, I give give all these people the corporate credit card, and they go register the domain names, but they're in all different accounts, and we have no clear ownership structure, and it's just kind of the Wild West. So I thought about that, and I thought, you know, the, a really good solution would be um, you just type in all the names of the employees of the company, you type in the company names, and we can c- create a registered account, of all the the assets that the employees owned and that the company owned in their names, and we could clearly go through that list and figure out everything that the company owned, and if there was something that was perhaps on the fence, we'd say, "Oh, you registered uh, backyardpool.com." Uh, we could say, well, "Did you register that for the company?" And They'd be like, "No, that was that was my own idea." Uh, but if they registered, you know, awesomehosting.com, we'd say, "Oh, well, well, clearly that was for the hosting company." They'd be, like, "Yeah, that was and." Um, it just wasn't a tool that was available. So I saw that as a real need and it took actually several years of thinking about it and development to actually make that come into fruition. And one of the, the big issues was in 1999, um, network solutions got broke up and now there were eight registrars. And you used to, back in 1998, be able to go to register, or network solutions and type in uh, a last name or company name And it would show you the top 50 results of what they owned. And it was a publicly available tool, the Whois, on Network Solutions. And that went away, and it got replaced by eight companies. And then that eight companies grew to 50, and then nowadays we have thousands. So um, as that whole process was evolving and more companies were coming online, I thought, gee, i got to start consolidating this data and allow people to do these searches and that was really kind of my business um, concept was I can make a, a, a for-profit business out of telling people what names everybody else knows. And my first clients were lawyers because lawyers were, we need this tool. This is that awesome tool. Um, and then it started to become a spot where lawyers said, you know, uh, someone registered uh, what we think is clearly a typo of some big brand. And we can't really prove wrongdoing on one name, but if we could see what else they own, maybe there's a pattern of conduct and we could show that to a judge and make our case more um, winnable. And so then they would they would find clear examples of a person doing that across multiple brands. And they would go to the judge. The judge would say, yep, that's a clear case of cyber squatting, which is uh, against the law, the 1998 law. And get the name taken away, um, and that was really kind of the issue. You got there's a kind of a three test process with with a dispute resolution with ICANN is is showing the bad faith, um, and and showing the bad faith. This was one of the tools of showing bad faith.
0: Kind of, and you operated domain tools for a while, and I believe that in that time you also started a conference for domain names uh, called Domain Roundtable, or
1: Yes, Yes. that's correct. Yeah, the Domain Roundtable was kind of an idea where essentially I had um, thousands of clients, and um, they were all interested in domain names. And I thought, you know, it would be really great to meet these people face-to-face, but I don't have the bandwidth to just invite everyone to just come to my office every day. And I thought, you know, obviously a conference would be the best way to do this. So the conference idea was born. And then there was another conference that actually happened after that. um, And I thought, oh, wow, a domain conference. So I went to that domain conference, which was, I think, the very first one. And, um, you know, took some notes. And they were doing, I I would say, a lot of things that I didn't think was intuitive. And they also did uh, some things I thought were great. And so I kind of took away some of their good concepts. And I kept my good concepts. And then the next year, a couple of months later... I started my conference domain roundtable um, with kind of all the all the good takeaways and, and all the stuff that I was planning to do already.
0: And what uh, actually goes into starting a conference? Did you book space in the city? Did you have to um, put out marketing? Like, how did you? organize Well, we
1: it? we exclusively advertised on our own website. We didn't we didn't do AdWords or billboards or any of that stuff. Um, and we had plenty of clients that we knew, um, and we had a mailing list. So we were able to reach out to our clients and let them know. And, uh, the process was actually quite involved. Um, I don't know if you've ever done a wedding. It, it's the equivalent of like three weddings because I'm
0: in the middle of doing that right now.
1: Okay. One yeah, wedding, so, not sweet. <laughs> so you, you, you go to the hotel venue, um, you essentially secure the venue space And then they say, well, then there's going to be a food and beverage minimum and how many hotel rooms. And so you start going through the whole process and you're like, okay, now I need food for these people. And I need, I need, uh, maybe some booth space for some sponsors and yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. It's almost like a full-time job for one person for an entire year to plan having three days of people show up and discuss domain names and my concept was essentially I wanted multiple viewpoints. I didn't want one figurehead shouting at the audience telling them what to believe and I wanted people to be able to choose different tracks. So, um, you know, if you did, if you found, let's say, the lawyer track boring, you could hop over to the entrepreneur track and so there were multiple um, events to actually go to um, and that I thought was very intuitive because you know even as a lawyer you might say well this particular next subject is going to be boring i'm going to go over to the entrepreneur track and just see what they're they're talking about i was actually
0: at a, a aws summit a week ago and they did something which was really interesting which um, you had three different tracks going on simultaneously in the same large auditorium and they did a silent disco format where there were headphones on each of the chairs. And so you could take the headphones and then just tune in on the speaker that you wanted to listen to. Um, and I thought it was a really great use of like one large space, multiple tracks, just taking that to the next level.
1: I really love that idea. That's that's pretty cool. I've been yeah. to a Twilio conference um, and they had the um, the headphones as well. And even the, It was weird because we were all in one room listening to one set of speakers, which we could have... S- overheard on the loudspeaker anyway. But each person had, you know, let's say a red light on or a yellow light on. Uh, so I think that technology is out there, and it, that's a really compelling use of it. Um, but clearly not one topic in one room with everybody with headphones on. It just, it's just weird.
0: Yeah, That had, that just seems like something that you would find in an engineering meme or <laughs> something yeah. of that sort. Um, for a domain roundtable, when you organized the conference, did you have... Um, any measures of success or like, how did you judge for yourself if the conference went well?
1: Well, um, you know, my first idea was, oh, okay, this is going to be, you know, a couple thousand people. Um, but it turns out that, um, there's only actually a couple hundred people in the world that make their entire living off of domain names. And that would be people like the registries and the registrars and the people who own 10,000 plus names. And, um, so I quickly found that my audience was that group of people. And you know I started out as a really passionate end user. And there were a few passionate end users that came, um, but there were a lot of collectors and a lot of entrepreneurs. And so it was a really good group of people because you felt like everyone that you talked to, you could do business with because they were all kind of like-minded or had products that were helpful.
0: Got it. And speaking of business, so Domain Tools, as I understand it, um, you ended up selling uh, for a very big exit. Um, And I'm wondering how, when that process, well, first of all, like how did that process start? Was that something that, was that your intention or did it just come along?
1: I I think that came out of actually the conference itself um, because we knew so many of these people in the industry and it was such a, a great gathering point. Um, we got a lot of interest in our company because of the conference, um, and because we were kind of um, bringing all the thought leaders together. Um, you know, I've, I've had Vince Surf and um, other well-respected leaders of of the internet kind of come and do uh, keynote speaking at the conference, um, and so. Yeah, the the sale of the company really kind of came about because, um, you know, we reached a certain point where we thought, you know, um, maybe this company is going to be able to double, maybe it's going to be able to triple, but it's not going to have the 200, 300% growth every six months like we had been having. So, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you look at your company and you go, okay, well, do I want to own this thing forever and treat it as kind of a, a lifestyle company? Or do I want to, you know, um, you know, essentially sell this rocket ship before it gets to its highest elevation and becomes a satellite that just kinda sits there and collects, you know, a normal set of whatever that revenue is. And I like to I like to build the rocket ship and ride it to the stratosphere, but before it becomes a, a spaceship just sitting there doing nothing, just collecting whatever that status quo income was, especially in a space like domain names where it is already niche. Now, if I was doing a venture like I am now, where I feel like the sky is not the limit, that I can go to Mars and beyond, um, then I'm going to hold on a lot longer unless I feel like the offer is just too too great that I have to sell, that I could go do something else that also has that same trajectory.
0: So uh, when you did... When you sold domain tools, um, at that point, it seemed like you were financially set in the sense that you could do anything that you wanted. Um, how did you decide afterwards like what your next move was going to be?
1: Well, I've always been passionate about, um, I would say, having more top-level domain names just because I saw um, just how easy... VeriSign's job was owning.com .com and .net and .org. And they just sit there and they cash a check. Um, and I said, you know, there's a lot of innovative domain names that could exist. Um, you know, .io kind of being kind of like that, even though it's owned by a country. Um, there are three-letter names that aren't existing now that can exist in three, four, five, six letters um, that are very intuitive like a dot shop or a dot web um, those I would argue if there was a dot web back in the 90s there would exist more dot webs right now than there are dot coms you would have Amazon dot web most likely um, dot com is really kind of one of these weird things you're like what does it stand for does it stand for commercial or does it stand for um, you know company Like, uh, we don't really know Um, it's, it's sort of amorphic. It kind of just kind of is, and people just go, Oh, well, .com means online, you know, at that point. So I, I registered .feedback and, um, you know, .realty and a couple other, I thought names that were intuitive and that have industries around them, um, where I could see that businesses would want to have those, those names and, and grow in those spaces um, but you, you run into the fact that people already have domain names. So you're really running into the entrepreneurs that don't have the names yet. Um, and so I think it's hard with something where everybody owns a .com. Why do they want to switch as uh, a switching cost? So that's, you know, as the new players come online, uh, you start breaking that down. Like for example, in the .io space right now, um, all the good stuff's gone in .com. so you just get a .io and i think with realty for example people will come online they'll be like oh let's get a .realty um, i can actually get a way better good name in .realty i can go get i can go get seattle.realty instead of uh, the uh, seattle company realty.com right yeah. some horrible .com name
0: well usually it's like you append a get to it it's so like get seattle or you take out some consonant or take out some vowels to make it go.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. And so we're we're going to be selling dot realty names at essentially three hundred dollars a year. Which you know, if you look at the cost of doing business as a realtor or as a broker, um, you know, it can be thousands of dollars a year. So we feel like branding yourself with a really good generic dot realty. You know, whether it be uh, Bellevue dot realty or New York dot realty that that is a really enticing um way to kind of go forward with a brand new company in that space and it will be kind of a hard sell for a while for the companies that already have a dot-com
0: and how are you getting the word out for people who are looking to do real estate businesses how do they know that dog guilty is even exists
1: so that's that's quite the conundrum um so it comes down to marketing and AdWords and, you know, Facebook advertising, um, and really kind of putting a sales team out there that will reach out and let people know. Cause our biggest issue right now is education and it's hard to sell something that people don't know exists. So we're going to conferences, setting up booths, kind of hitting, hitting the, the ground and letting people know that we do exist. And, um, I think with that $300 price, we're actually able to contact individual people and let them know. And we can't, we can't really do that if we were a 10 or $20 name. So once we get to the point where, you know, we're saturated and everyone's got a dot realty, we can actually afford to lower that price over time and, and allow people to, you know, get a name for less.
0: When you operate a top level domain, what kind of controls do you have over the domain once you issue it? Um, I'm thinking, I know that some couple registered the .wedding domain and they had this rule that people could only own the domain for a year. And then it had to go back in the pool so that other people could reuse it. But I'm curious, like, when you own these top-level domains, what kind of authority or precedence can you set?
1: Well, you're free to write the rules essentially as, as the steward of the namespace, um, and we know that essentially the the more free it is and the more relaxed, the more more people are going to embrace it. So, um, you know, when you buy a house, if you go buy a house in a community where they say you have to have a pink house, and you have to have yellow trim, and you have to have a flamingo in the front front yard, that there's going to be a certain amount of people that will say, I don't want to live in that community, um, and Um, People say, you know, I want to live in a community where there are no rules. And um, I'll take my chances that my neighbor doesn't put up a pink pink polka dotted house. Um, And usually, usually that you're you're fine with that. Like, usually that's not the case. So it really comes down to can you uh, have a few rules that really make the community special and okay and inviting so in feedback, you know, I want I want each site to to actually allow people to give feedback and I stopped at that point and said, okay, you don't have to display feedback but you do have to take feedback. Um, and so if someone types in a name, uh, if they type in, you know, yahoo.feedback they should be able to give feedback to Yahoo. Um, and that's up to Yahoo how they want to do that and what they want to do with that. But it wouldn't be okay to own that name and do nothing with it. Because I feel like parking pages are such a waste of that good identifier. And I'm not really on board with kind of spoiling it. So at least redirect it to a contact form where a person can give feedback. Um, Otherwise you're kind of just polluting the internet by buying up the real estate and not allowing a person to really use it.
0: When on the topic of, identity um you know companies people there are so many channels now where you can establish an identity there is your domain um either .com or any of the other top level domains there's social uh, networks like facebook and twitter there's the phone number um it just seems like now if a person wanted to go out and start a business it's a little overwhelming to figure out well now that i have my uh, trade name and my business name, where exactly should I put it out there? Like, um, and so I guess the question is, how do you navigate this? Like, what, what do you think about when you think about like establishing the identity of
1: a business? Well, when you're an entrepreneur and you have your idea, um, the first thing you kind of want to do is I think get a domain name because that really, it sets the tone for what, what you're going to call your thing or your company. Um, and without that, you really kind of you spin. You don't know what what your direction is. Um, you know, you go to the let's say the Department of Licensing for the corporations, and you say, "Hey, is uh, is the the whatever available?" And they go, "Yep, the whatever LLC is available. You can register that, and that's not a big deal." But then you go try to register the domain name, and it's it's been taken. So I think it's more intuitive to go get the domain name first. Then get the, the corporation, because the corporation can actually be named anything. And usually there's not so much competition, because you're dealing with local governments, not, not a national, international, galactic government that controls the top-level domain name. So, yeah, start with a domain name, then go get your registration from your local authority, state. And, um, and then you set up your web hosting and your email. Um, I would start with a splash page, you know, just let people know what you're going to be doing. Um, and frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs, they kind of stop at that point. Um, it kind of scratched the itch just enough. They got it out there and then they never go further. And so you'll see, I would say nine out of 10, uh, want entrepreneurs get to that point and you want to take it to the next level. You want to make sure your emails operational, um, the next thing you want to do is get a phone number. You want to put an 800 number on that website. You want to route it to your, your mobile phone. You want to look big. Um, you want to start you know, putting product descriptions. You maybe want to get um, shopping cart software or just go integrate with something like Shopify or whatever and actually start selling what you want to do online. If you want an online business, you know, restaurants, you just put your menu up and you're good. You still need a phone number. And I think at this point, um, you kind of have to separate your personal life from your business life. You can't really be asking your business people to be contacting, uh, your, your cell phone. It just looks very unprofessional because you don't know how to answer your cell phone when you have a business person calling you. It just looks like a robo dial or something. So you got to have a phone system that allows you to pick up the phone and answer it professionally and say, this is whatever, um, you've reached whatever and we're selling whatever sprockets. So, um, yeah, there's, I think there's a check lo- a checkbox of all the things you want to do and in what order, but I think phone number is probably, um, to me, the next evolution of where I want to be as an entrepreneur. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm with a company called 800.com now and we offer toll free phone numbers. And we offer texting that goes with that, if they so choose, um, but it allows a person to have a voice tree and say, okay, press one for sales, press two for billing. And then you can go ahead and you can ring the entrepreneur. We can whisper in the entrepreneur's ear before the, the call begins and let them know, hey, this, this call came through your sales line or this call came through your billing line. And the entrepreneur is now ready to answer the phone and say, this is the billing department of whatever and and begin that conversation where do you see um
0: like 800 numbers in the space of all the other ways that a customer can now reach a business you see especially in past years now like you have this focus on chat bots you have to focus on text messaging um there are now all these different avenues where consumers can reach businesses do you think that a, where
1: does the phone line fit in this picture Um, I think the phone is, is, it's super important because, um, you have all these walled gardens like Facebook and grandmothers may not be on Facebook or young kids may not be on Facebook. And so you start running into this, um, explosion of walled gardens. You're like, Oh, for support, go to Facebook, go to Twitter, go to whatever is new thing of the day. Whereas a phone number just works. You go to a phone company, you buy your, your mobile phone and there's no password for texting and there's no password for making phone calls. It just works out of the box. Um, all those other sites are harder for people to set up and get ready and keep on top of. So yeah, I think as a business, you really want to focus on, on those areas, um, where, texting your clients is actually really important. Um, millennials and other people, they don't necessarily want to call your phone number, they want to text your phone number. So it's very important to have a textable resource. And
0: on the topic of businesses, um, when I was doing research, it seems like you are currently involved in a number of different businesses. So 800.com, or 800 being one of them, but also GLT uh, and then Top Level Spectrum and the number of different top level domains that you have um, I'm wondering how are you managing your time between all these different
1: priorities uh, well I, I mean I try to hire smart people that work with me so that um, they can be dedicated at one particular task and company and you really have to have um, I would say people like that that can carry the torch in in that particular way um, it, it's it's good because you know I wake every day and I look at the companies and I set the priorities and say okay well um, here are the big things on my list for each of the companies and I I start working on those things um, and I split my time um, you know as an entrepreneur uh, I think that you get probably eighty percent efficiency for 20% of your effort. So, you know, if I can take my 100% effort and split it on five companies, now I'm getting 80%, 80%, 80%, 80%, 80%, 80%, which is far more than the 100% output that you would expect doing 100% output.
0: And how might a day for you look like? Do you spend one day focused on all your different companies, or do you take a day and split it on you know, five different
1: aspects of one company? Um, well, for, for some companies um, where I may be um, you know, a minority partner um, or able, may not be active day-to-day, I'll usually um, carve out one to two days a month, maybe four, um, where I spend a couple hours on that company. So for example, I have a game company called Warzone.com. And I, I usually spend probably uh, probably a good solid eight hours spread out throughout the month on that company. And I usually meet with um, one of our, our developers there uh, who's the founder of the company. And you know, he is he's living that company. He's doing it 100% of his time. Um, but it's easy to go through the things that he's working on and give him guidance on those things and not have to be spending 100% of my time on that. I can I can spend eight hours a month talking with him, and that is sufficient so that we can be in a consensus as to where the company is going.
0: On um, your website, you had a quote that where you mentioned how you liked running, building, and investing in companies. And those are three different stages of... or co- oh, three different goals when working with a company... And I'm wondering, like, what parts of those goals do you find overlap? Or how do you change your sh- thinking or your effort when you're at different stages in the process?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the the easiest one is to hand someone a check and say, go run with this, and, and I hope your idea is successful. And you check in with them a couple times a year. I like to be a little bit more involved. I like to um, try to be... Uh, meeting with the entrepreneur, um, at least once a month so that I can kind of keep a pulse on the business and give my input there, um, and really kind of feel like I'm contributing to something. Um, and then, you know, for the entrepreneurial itch that I have, I like to also be running something day to day, um, in there with the thick of it. Um, you know, not necessarily, uh, that hands on that, you know, I'm, lifting the sprockets and putting them on the shelves and packaging them and running them to the post office. But to the point where, um, you know, I am essentially, uh, able to do the job of a CEO in a company and get the company to where it should be and be, be available for that company 60, 70% of the time. Um, that's, that's, I think my, my day job, like 800.com is kind of my day job. And then I I spend a little bit of my time elsewhere on things I've invested in or things I'm partners on. Um, You know, things like running top level domain names, which, you know, frankly isn't that complicated. Once you've set up the whole process, there's a few daily chores that you need to do um, every three months to kind of keep that process going. But I find that, you know, I I do have to step back from, let's say, doing 100% sales, like outbound reach. There's only a you know, hundred registrars that you really need to talk to, and I would say ten that matter. So um, you want to have conversations with those people um, multiple times a year, and you you don't need to do that every day.
0: When you are checking up with a company that you're invested in, let's say like once a month, what do those meetings uh, look like? What do you ask for to figure out how well a company is doing?
1: Well, the big question is, what what is going up and to the right? you know? Is it the number of inquiries or emails coming in? Is it the number of sprockets that you're selling? Um, You have to find out what that metric is as an entrepreneur. And as an investor, you've got to say, okay, you're going to be focused on sprockets and sprocket sales. And I want to see that number going up and to the right. And if it's not going up and to the right, is there a different metric that we should be judging you on? Because that is really the lifeblood of the company. Um, I don't want to be caught up in a company that uh, is flatlined and is going flat. Because now you're you're saying, well, I really should be selling this thing because um, you know either I can't give advice that gets it up into the right, or the company can't do it. Um, but yeah, that's I mean that's the whole idea as an investor and as an entrepreneur, if you can't make something grow, you should probably sell it and, and give it to someone that's going to love it, nurture it long-term or that has their own plan to move it up into the right.
0: Do you see any common mistakes that startups and founders make as they're trying to grow their companies? Uh,
1: I think the biggest common mistake that entrepreneurs have, um, is, not focusing on a particular area or a particular niche, um, really filling that niche out, and and then doing some pivots, um, they will kind of say, "Oh, I want to do everything." And you look at it and you say, "Okay, well, you're doing six things in your company, but what are those six things actually has traction? Um, maybe you should just step back, look at the one thing that has traction." put a lot more focus on the thing with the traction and make that thing go up and to the right versus you know trying to get more employees or whatever like the, getting more employees is a really bad metric in fact it's it's a death sign like um, if if an entrepreneur says well I'm, I'm growing my employees and be like okay well let's back up what are those employees doing um, are you making money with those employees because you know if you've got an employee that's making a hundred thousand a year you should be making at least 200,000 a year per employee because you need to be funding R and D and the rent that goes to housing these people and all the other things that go into making a company successful Um, that if you're just in growing employees for the sake of growing employees and, and that, you know, if you back up, that's also a problem inside corporations where you get these, these fiefdoms, these managers that, they just want to grow the headcount so they look important inside of a, a big corporation, and that's kind of a cancer inside companies. You, you want to make sure that people aren't just growing for the sake of looking important. You want to you want to know that each department, each in, in individual employee, is actually contributing to the bottom line of the company.
0: I've seen the headcount uh, process actually firsthand, where especially in new teams, where it's really hard to measure like what success looks like because you don't have a product out and nothing to measure it by something that certain managers will do is say like look at how many employees we've hired this semester and this quarter because you can show that you have a number that is going up um even though like you mentioned like it might not actually tie to your business goal and if you don't have clarification of what that business goal is hiring more people only makes it harder
1: yeah, I mean, once you grow past a team of four or five engineers, um, the complexity you know triples and doubles and it just keeps going crazy. So you know, my advice for people in a, you know, let's say, a big company like Microsoft or Amazon, if they're in a small team, is that small team, you know, maybe that small team is working on a concept or a proof of concept, uh, you know, a um, minimum viable product, as you would call it. Um, that should really be the focus of the company or that department. And at a certain point you say, okay, it's been a year. Where's your, where's your minimum viable product? Or it's been six months, whatever the timeline is, um, you know, maybe, maybe that, that particular project's not cutting it. Maybe it's time to just cut the whole team or take the team and put them on new projects. Um, you know, you can't have too many companies with these siloed divisions that don't end up making something that makes money for the company. Um, in Seattle, something that I
0: notice come up a lot, especially in the startup community, this is comparison of Seattle to the Bay Area, especially when it comes to, um, like money and funding. Um, being based in Seattle and being an investor in Seattle and also involved in the startup community, how do you, um, where, what are the advantages or? disadvantages you see from starting a company here versus the bay area
1: i think the the investors and the entrepreneurs in seattle are probably a little bit more focused on actually creating a product that does achieve um money as quick as possible revenue for the company and in the bay area you got a lot of pie in the sky type missions and teams that come together and they get funding for astronomical amount of money and you go, well, what are they doing? And they're like, Oh, they're, they're, they're trying to solve the balloon problem. And you go, what's the balloon problem? They're like, well, there's this problem with balloons and and no one's solved it yet. And we've got this team that's going to work on it and solve it. And, um, and if we do that, it's a billion dollars. And so, you know, we're just raising 10 million. And so we think that's reasonable because we have a hundred million dollar valuation, because we're chasing a market that's never existed. And I think you see a lot of those ideas coming out of the valley. Um, and you know they they take up enough moonshots that you know the VCs they're only looking for a 10% success rate that they're okay gambling like that. Here in Seattle, the VCs they go show us the actual business. And the investors here, a lot of them come from Microsoft and other, you know, other places and they go show us the actual business. Um, and so I think it's actually harder for an entrepreneur in Seattle to kind of really get started because you have to convince, I think, um, you know, the, the hard money lenders, the, you know, the venture capitalists or the angels to really believe that you're going to produce something that isn't going to require 16 rounds of funding. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to say, okay, you know, I want to start with 400,000 and, assuming i burn that 400,000 and i'm showing good improvements i'm going to come back and i'm going to ask for 2 million and once i burn that 2 million i'm going to come back and i'm gonna ask for 8 million and um that's really hard i think in Seattle ecosystem um unless you've got really good a technical co-founder and a really good business co-founder it's very hard to really i think do that in Seattle
0: on the flip side, it seems like if you can manage to get past that critical examination of your business model, that you're probably starting off on a stronger footing.
1: Yeah, there there is really good support here for people that have been able to figure out the the intricacies of their model, and once they've just shown a you know a small bit of success, you can go you can take that model and you can say, listen. You know, for $100,000 that we were able to scrape together in the beginning, we have figured out that our cost of sprockets is $25 and that we can make $75. And that is a really compelling story. And you just go, listen, we're going to do this at a much bigger scale. And I think that, that idea is able to get funded quite easily in Seattle. Um, yeah, you can get funded elsewhere as well. And I think the Bay Area is fine to get funded, Boston, Austin, all these great areas, you just, you have a hard time, let's say in like Florida getting funded with a good idea.
0: Um, one more note on investments. I read, I believe it was on your website. You had a quote about, um, investing in yourself and how that was very important. How, or what are some of the ways that you invest in yourself?
1: Um, well, i like to think, you know, every mistake I make is, as an investment in myself. Um, uh, I I read a lot of books, and I you know I follow the tech news just to make sure I know what's going on. Um, looking at what competitors are doing is very important. Um, you know, investing yourself um, doesn't come down to just knowledge and, and appreciation of the business. it Comes down to health as well. So you know, a happy, healthy body is going to produce a lot more than, you know, someone that's crunched over their desk and just, um, it's going to burn out. I've, I've had employees, uh, you know, burn out where they just, they put every single waking ounce of energy into what they were coding. And yeah, they, they just, they wanted to change. They were like, I'm going to go be a, uh, a, a barista, you know, just, I just, I need a break. I just need to clear my head. Right. Right. Do you, uh, what do you do when you want to recharge or just take away from things? Uh, I mean, vacation is fun. Um, that's a that's an easy one to recharge. Yeah. Skiing, traveling, um, you know, spending time with the kids. That's those are all great activities. Um, you know, frankly, I wish I could work more, right? Um, you know, having a having a family and and all these activities takes away from being an entrepreneur and. You know, I, I really think, feel like, you know, the best time to be an entrepreneur is when you don't have kids because, um, you look at the people like Bill Gates and others, they got their start, like, like, um, Mark Zuckerberg, they, they didn't have families or kids or any of that stuff. They could burn the midnight oil, get stuff done, but they all eventually settle down and, and are able to have a work-life balance. And I think as an entrepreneur in your twenties, um, you know, the best entrepreneurs don't have that balance. They kind of just get it all done. And, and they're like, you know, in five years, maybe I'll have more of a balance and they get there. Um, but you're going to burn out if you do that for 10, 20 years, you can't, it's not possible.
0: Yeah. A phrase I heard people mention is work life harmony in the sense of, you know, you're not, it's not always going to be balanced. There are times when work is going to take much more of your time and maybe, you know, 10 years down the line, it's going to be family, but there are different times in life when different things take precedence
1: yeah it's true uh essentially there's the ib and the flow like you know my kids have the flu this week so i've been doing you know 80 percent family stuff um doctors and and like all this other stuff so um yeah you you do find that and then i'll go on a business trip and i'll talk to my wife three or four times during the whole trip and um and I get to enjoy actually, you know, being immersed in, in the day-to-day details of the company. So we're getting close to
0: the end of the show. Um, and I usually like to close with a set of closing questions that I ask all my guests. And the very first question is, what is something that has inspired you recently?
1: Uh, you know, I've been inspired by um, travel. That's, that's one of the things I love to do. Um, I love to see the ideas of other cultures. So I was just in Japan and I was in Osaka and I just, I loved walking down the streets of Osaka and looking at all the vendors there. And I thought, man, there's just nothing like this in Washington state. In fact, there's, there's nothing like this on the West coast or even the East coast. Um, you know the vendors there; they've got like a 15-foot-wide storefront that goes back. Let's just call it 100 feet, and they sell all their stuff in there. But you know, as you're walking past vendor, vendor after vendor after vendor, every 15 feet, and and one on each side of you, you go, "Wow, there are hundreds of shops on this street here. That's actually got a, a roof over it. Um, it's been enclosed. It's still outdoors." Um, but that like that's so inspiring to see other people's concepts and ideas that you, you just go wow one day I want to own a, a mall like this 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 is such a great concept so yeah travel is great because you really you get to take apart everything that everyone around the world is doing entrepreneurs everywhere are innovating on you get to capture those concepts and ideas write them down in your journal and come back and and hopefully execute on some of them.
0: Yeah, um, There's so many people in the world. They're doing so many different things. And I think once you start traveling, you just realize how big the world is and how different, like, how people have managed to solve the same problems or problems you might not even know you've had in so many different ways.
1: Yeah, I I mean, like, I I was just in Japan, and we were skiing. And you, you just realize, you're like, wait, I come from an area where the skiing is next level. Like, there is valets, and there are... Um, you know, ski checks on the mountain, and you've got you know uh, private homes alongside the slopes, and all this other stuff. And then you go to a place like Japan, and you're like, "Wait, they don't have all these concepts yet." And you just, you're the entrepreneur inside you goes, "I really want to move to a Japanese <laughs> ski resort and just take all the ideas that that North America has executed on so well, and just put them there."
0: Yeah, and you just need to clone <laughs> another version of yourself so that
1: yeah i mean and it's hard to it's hard to actually take your mind out of being an entrepreneur when you're on vacation because you see all these things and you go man i i see all these ideas that you know could happen or should happen but i just don't i don't have that extra life to give towards that
0: right um my next question what is something that people might not know about you
1: uh oh that's a tough one um I think that, um, I, I mean, I, everyone knows that I like phone numbers. Everyone knows I like domain names. Um, I think the biggest thing that people probably don't know in the business world is that, you know, I take, I take vacation seriously. I, I, like to, I like to go boating. I like to go flying. Um, you know, I like to really kind of live when I'm on vacation. Um, And, you know, sitting by a pool is probably not the vacation you're going to find me doing um, unless I'm supervising kids swimming.
0: Yeah, I find that um, the times when I take vacation, um, if it's, you know, sitting by a lake, um, it's good for the first 10 minutes. And then I, I get really restless. And I find I always have to do something.
1: Yeah, you have to bring a book or a laptop or your cell phone and you find yourself actually working.
0: Yeah, or like finding some sort of vacation project that you can take on.
1: Yeah, if you're going to disconnect on vacation, I mean, driving a boat, driving a plane, these are these are things where you can't be thinking about your business.
0: Um, my next question, what is a principle that you like to live by?
1: A uh, principle that I live by? Um, you know, I would say it's, it's personal. And it, it really goes to the fact of Um, your body is a temple and I, I mean, I'm trying to live healthier and healthier every day that I go. Um, so, I mean, I cut out red meats and I've been, I've been doing my best to try to cut out sugar, even though that's, that's a pretty hard one to give up Yeah. considering, you know, um, I'm still drinking, you know, alcohol when I, when I go out socially, um, and I, I still have chocolate and all this other good stuff. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, hopefully by the time I'm in my 80s and 90s, uh, you know, I'm, I'm living a really positive, healthy life, and um, I can be really authentic to myself, um, but at the same time, you know, have a really good quality life. And now, is that something
0: that um, you've always been focused on, like having a healthy diet and a healthy body, or did something happen to trigger that, or was it a gradual Kind of realization
1: uh you know i think i mean i'm 41 now so i've i've lived enough to see people get old people die um it happens all around me all the time my sister just died six months ago and um you know frankly before that i've seen so many family friends and friends that they get into their 50s and health catches up with them and they are at a point where they end up dying for whatever reason be it a heart attack or whatever and um, yeah it's just you realize short, short life um, and what if I'm 15 years away from that I better be working on it
0: yeah looks like we got a soundtrack to today's podcast Thanks yeah we, to have, we
1: have some boats in the background playing some music here. yeah
0: well I just have one more question before I let you go and this one's open-ended is there anything that we didn't talk about today that you would like to speak to or now
1: yeah, I mean, um, some of the stuff that I've, I've never really kind of addressed. I would, I would love to work on some philanthropic stuff at some point in my life. Um, you know, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the homelessness uh, situation we have in Seattle is is one that I would love to work on. Um, you know, the the drug problem that we have in this society. These are the types of things I, I spend actually a lot of time thinking about. And I would love to use my entrepreneurial uh, mind to help solve. And I think one day, um, you know, hopefully a couple exits later, I'll be at a point where I'll have the resources to actually kind of dive in and make some long-term impacts. Um, one of the things I love about Bill Gates is that, you know, he, he made this huge war chest but you know, he didn't just accumulate it and go off to Fiji. Uh, he, he's, he's in this community. He's looking around for problems that he can solve on, on really what is his micro budget because he doesn't have the budget of the United States or the UN, but he can focus on niche issues like, like health or a disease and, and really make an impact. And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to look at, at your war chest and say, what, what problems can I solve with my, my resources? Um, and so I'd like to have, you know, enough resources at some point to be able to solve some doable problems that, you know, governments haven't been able to figure out like this, this homeless situation in Seattle.
0: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would look forward to any sort of solution that can help in those cases. And maybe we'll have another conversation when that time comes.
1: Yeah, yeah, it comes down to vision and execution and, and funding. And uh, you find that the politicians, they lack some of those attributes um, and don't have the authority. And so it's just the status quo that keeps going. It's crazy. But uh, for another day.
0: For another day. Well, in the meantime, Ajay, thank you so much for taking the time. And I had a
1: lot of fun talking. All right. Thank you.
0: Hey everyone, this is Kevin again. Which is a few more things before you go. First of all, thanks for listening, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple or Google Play. That really helps other people find this show. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Jay. Frankly, I am still dumbstruck by how many different businesses and priorities Jay is able to manage at the same time. Running businesses isn't easy, and Speaking as somebody who is spending all their time running just a single business, I think it's incredible what Jay is able to do. This conversation definitely reminded me to take a closer look at my priorities and find the 80-20 areas in my life that I can double down on. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, hope you have some great conversations.